and welcome to The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stan, how are you? It's good to see my friend Stan. Yeah, yeah, we sing a song about our friendship all day long. <laughs> cool, while Shane is distracted, I'm going to introduce our next co-host, also with us in Chicago. It's the godfather, Dave Harberger. It's clobberin' time. That might be a copyright phrase, so we'll <laughs> edit it in post. Aren't we ta- we're talking about the deck that he's in, right? I always thought that Karn looked like Thing. Is that not right? Mm, is the Thing a golem? That's an interesting question. Mm, that's a whole mm. different vibe. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a rockman. I got my favorite rockman here with us too. The new warden in town, Zach. Call him. Stan, I want you to know that today is the first day of the rest of your life. What? This is gonna be a really good episode, I can tell. On this week's show, we're gonna look at the modern decks from SCG Cincinnati's team open, along with the SCG Modern Classic from that event. Then in the dive down, we assemble Tron and teach you how to disassemble it. Finally, in the wind down, we take another listener question about... You're going to have to listen to find out. But first, a little housekeeping. We want to give a special thanks to Poke Wizard, Nerdy Beard, Lale, maybe Lyle? Leal. Leal. And the Five Star Master for leaving us some very kind and generous reviews on iTunes. If you like our show and you haven't already done so, please leave us a review on iTunes and we'll give you a shout out on a future episode. Also, if you're a new listener, remember to subscribe to our show wherever you download podcasts. And you can find us on Twitter at the Dive Down, all one word. I also just wanted to quickly thank everybody for the such positive response to the um, episode that we had last week. I wanted to just reach out again to thank um, Ross Miriam for being on on the episode with us. It's been really amazing just to uh, see the reactions roll in, and uh, we really enjoyed it. Uh, fans seem to enjoy it and so we're listening to the feedback that came out of that episode to keep improving so thanks so much for uh, being engaged and talking with us yeah it's crazy we keep getting emails from magic pros that are now just dying to be on our podcast and we have to tell them no guys you have to wait or start your own podcast we have a three-month waiting list right now so please get at us right now it's not going to be long until the pros figure out that they don't need us for this and then start (laughs) their own podcast we're the rich the common man All right, let's hop over to Zach at the news desk with this week's breakdown. Yeah, so we're going over two tournament results from Cincinnati. The first one is from Team Constructed Open. And just a a quick thing about this format, uh, there's a team of three people, and they're playing three different formats. So one person's playing Legacy, one person's playing Standard, one person's playing Modern. So we're just going to go over the Modern decks from this one. Yeah. So the thing to just point out really quick on this is that it's not possible for us to know exactly how well each modern deck performed individually. We only know kind of how the team did. So yeah. some of these decks might feel a little out of order, but we still thought it was a representative sample of the meta. Yeah. So maybe take the results with a grain of salt. We're kind of mostly focusing on some of the spicy stuff that jumped out to us because who knows how the weekend really played out and who carried the team and you know, who played this weird Is It Phoenix deck that probably isn't very good anyway? Never heard of it. So the top eight for this constructed event, we had uh, Green Tron coming in first, which is the topic of today's show. Whoa. Uh, we have in second place a UR Phoenix, and they are running two of the Pyramancer's Ascension main board, so that card's really catching on. We have a Were Prison list that's pretty interesting in the third spot. They're all in on the Thopter combo, 
and running Sorceress Kanta. They are very interestingly not running Sorcerer Spyglass, which I think is a particularly good card in the meta, so that's an interesting call on their part. Fourth and fifth, we have Amulet Titan. Sixth, Dredge. Seventh, Eldrazi Taxes. And then tying it up again, Green Tron. Yeah, this were Prisonless. It was cutting the Ipnu Rivulet as their, you know, one of their win cons. So as a result, that they don't have Crucible of Worlds in their package either. Basically giving them more room for the Thopter combo, as well as Search for contest to, to get through the deck a little faster. I thought perhaps making it more consistent. I mean, this was piloted by Zan Syed, who, you know, is all over modern. And uh, so yeah. I, I would definitely take a second look at any deck that he or a team that he's on manages to pilot into a top eight. Usually very good at deck building, bringing new things. Yeah, this top eight team list is just a murderer's row of like SCG people. So many recognizable names. And it really shows that when you have a team of three people, how the cream rises to the top, typically in terms of talent and ability. Not putting anyone else down, of course. There's definitely people I don't recognize here, but a lot of SCG grinders really showed up here. Yeah, and also we should point out, once again, Ross Merriam's team came in eighth place here with uh, Jib Davis and Tanning Grace. So uh, congrats to getting that dive down bounce, Ross. Yeah. Have you guys noticed Eldrazi Taxes kind of peeking its head up a little bit more than usual? Yes. Let's save it for the cha- for the classic because there's two in the top eight of the classic. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, yeah, yeah, we'll just we'll just bring that up there. So that was the top eight. When you go beyond the top eight, we start to see, uh, you know, the friendly friend is it Phoenix rearing its head. There are eight is it Phoenix decks in the combined uh, top twenty seven. In fact, just of the top twenty one, if you want to ignore the last uh, six. I think that's moving the goalposts on sample size, but okay. <laughs> Silence is malleable. Well, top twenty-seven, I think, was just the day two teams, right? So they just kind of they just give, they give you all the day two decks now, which is quite nice of uh, them. That's cool. I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, I think that you know if we just did even just a top twenty-four or something like that, we still have a third of the room being blue red phoenix. Not a third of the top eight, though. Good point. All right, so looking at the top 16, the 15th place team's modern player, who is a uh, someone by the name of Brandon Zagnowski, he was on this uh, Restore Balance, as foretold, Electro Dominance deck. And we've been seeing Electro Dominance used and appearing in different shells ever since the card is printed, and it seems to work especially well paired with as foretold. And I thought this restore balance plan was really interesting as kind of something that we don't see a ton of in modern in general. This deck runs four greater Gargadon. And my understanding, having not played it yet, is you basically want to suspend greater Gargadon as early as you can, then spin your wheels until you can cheat restore balance in off of an as foretold or potentially an electro dominance, which I think is probably less ideal since you prefer to have the as foretold stick around after you restore balance and then i assume when you cast your restore balance you hold priority sack all of your lands to greater gargadon and then your opponent has to sack all their lands too and then you basically outvalue them right so i think there's a couple of really interesting things about this Uh, one thing i would say really quick is that as foretold is not affected by restore balance it's only lands creatures and cards in hand just like the original balance 
Um, so something to keep in mind, but the, the thing that's interesting to me about this is that we're kind of seeing, like Stan said, multiple kind of decks coming off of the core of as foretold and electro dominance. So if living end is sort of like the creature kill flood the board combo fast deck version of this, this is the control version of this. I think kind of, it has some counter magic in it, which, you know, living end does sometimes too, but you know, this has like, we're going to just abuse playing suspend cards, particularly ancestral vision and restore balance, you know, do this crazy trick with greater Gargadon, a la what people used to do with real balance with Zurin orb, and then maybe have some planeswalkers in play that we can just kill you with from there. So it's kind of this interesting control take on that cheaty suspend core. Yeah, it also has three Planeswalkers in the main deck. One Chandra Torch of Defiance, one Jace the Mind Sculptor, and one Karn. And to me, one of the things that's interesting is all three of these walkers actually help get you through your deck faster. Mm -hmm. And you can, I believe, cast anything from these walkers, including like Chandra, which is exiling a card off your library. You can still cast that off of an As Foretold. Yeah, I mean, it looks like it to me. So that's cool. Yeah, I got to say, this is one of those decks that makes me want to put $200 down to open up a new strategy. Not sure if I'm going to just yet, but uh, I, I was pretty impressed with this list and kind of made me want to try it out. I will say, I think that if you were kind of speculating on cards that might go up in price in the future, getting a hold of As Foretolds might mm-hmm. be worth it, depending on how much they are right now. They're $14 and out of stock from Star City Games, for example. I think if you could pick up a play set of those, there's a good chance. That feels a card to me that might people might continue to kind of play around with. And then one day, because it's uh, a mythic from a set that's a couple years old, it might spike like crazy and you don't want to be shut out of that. So I might consider getting as foretolds and electro dominances and just throw them in the binder until the, the rest of the shell gets worked out. And thus ends your weekly segment of MTG Finance here on The Dive Down. do 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 I'm just looking out for people's wallets, you know. Yoink. His name is pronounced Chelvnowski, for what it's worth. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Did anybody else see lists that they want to talk about? Uh, I had one or two that I just wanted to point out, unless someone else wants to talk about them. So in 18th place, the team in 18th place, uh, the modern player was playing a Grixis Control list that was packing two Cruel Ultimatums. This is uh, something that we've seen a couple of times lately, which... You know, I'm not sure if that deck, if that deck and specifically that card is really fast enough at this point in time, but it is super sweet to see it pop up every once in a while where uh, people just want to do a lot of, a lot of damage and make people discard some cards. Yeah. So th- this is the same guy who placed seventh place at the Chicago regionals with uh, the Grixis control deck as well. And who Zach and Stan apparently had dinner with at a diner. It was lovely. Ma Fishers in Milwaukee. Check it out. Ma Fishers, get at us. <laughs> Sponsor our magic podcast. We're looking for our official diner of the dive down. We will take payment in patty melts. <laughs> oh, 100%, 100%. Is it just me or is Cruel Ultimatum the ultimate win more? If you're um, casting that at, what is it, seven mana after you've controlled the whole board state with all of your other spells, you're probably going to win with or without that card, right? I, I disagree. I think it pushes you over when you need it. With control, you can often get into top deck wars where you're just trying to get something out and both your opponent are out of gas, and that card is going to push you so far ahead in that war that they it's very hard for your opponent to come back from a resolved cruel ultimatum. 
Yeah, and also this this deck is pairing it with Snapcaster Mage. So the card that you're most likely to pull back out of your graveyard when you reanimate it is a Snapcaster Mage, which, you know, obviously you won't get to cast this again, but maybe you'll have enough mana that you'd be able to pop off another one mana spell or something like that, like a fatal push. This this card was the core of a deck in standard back when it was when it was standard legal. I don't know, what was that? Alara Alara block or Lauren block or I I forget the original printing of it, but um so I, it's it's one of those things that's gonna always kind of be on the on the fringes. So that one was cool, and also congrats to those guys for making it to 18th place. Jeez, I love a world where this deck is good. Let's let's see if it keeps going or not. <laughs> the last one I just wanted to say really quickly was the 24th place team was running a blue moon list that was um, all in on Kiki combo as their kind of win con, and uh, it's always heartwarming to see Kiki Jiki and uh, Pester might show up occasionally. So just wanted to give a little tip of the old. Tip of the old Exarch to that that team. <laughs> he tips your land, you tip your hat. <laughs> exactly. Great. So next we got the Modern Classic. So this was taking place at the same event. So this was not the main event there. That was the team-constructed event. So this was a side modern event. Yeah, this usually happens on the Sunday following the main event on Saturday. Right. Exactly. So the top eight for this one is in first place, Blue Red Phoenix. Second place, Blue Red Phoenix. Third place, Blue White Control. Fourth place, Burn. In fifth place, an Eldrazi Taxes deck that was running four Chalice of the Void. Sixth place, Hardened Scales. Seventh place, another Eldrazi Taxes with four Chalice as well. And then in eighth place, a Blue White Spirits deck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things I noticed was that Blue White Control deck had three main deck Relic of Progenitus. Ooh. It's all the rage right now. We're doing it. Look out. Yeah, so Eldrazi Taxes, guys. Is this the answer we've been looking for? I, I think it's one of them, yeah. I feel like it could be after looking at the deck list. So I, I have this deck. It was the second deck I ever bought, but I've never really got to play it much because I uh, kind of kept with my blue-red love for, for a long time. But um, seeing it there with the four chalices is what really kind of made me have a, a light bulb moment where it's kind of like, wow, you can really tax everything with this. You can tax their spells. You can counter their spells. You can tax their fetch lands. You can just play all the... I'll play all the hate, play it all right now in this deck. And so um, maybe it is does have some gaming in this in this metagame right now, which would be a really cool um, alternative, I think. Yeah, I think Thalia, the two mana one that taxes spells, is also particularly powerful right now. So the main decks that we talked about lately are Phoenix and Dredge, and both those decks do not have mana to spare. Yeah. Also, this deck is pretty decent against Tron. Knowing that Tron was going to be out there more as people were picking up that it was good against the boogeyman of Visit Phoenix, I think it's also smart. So if it has a positive win rate against a few popular decks out there, yeah, it's going to show up. I think it's a smart idea. So the other thing I would say really quick about these lists, looking over them a little bit more closely now, is that they're a little bit in on cheaty, cheaty face stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. So for Simeon Spirit Guide is not something that you generally see main deck in these. And so they're really taking a shot at trying to get a first turn chalice up or maybe a first turn Thalia even, I guess. There's a couple of different outlets that make it make it good to kind of use that there. Leon and Arbiter, I think, is the only other one. Leon and Arbiter, yeah, you could you could definitely get that into play too. Less less powerful, but still good. Also, you know, the this deck had evolved away from packing four Reality Smashers main, and both of these lists def, uh, are playing four of those. They also both have three Gemstone Caverns in the in the main deck, so it looks like they're trying to take advantage of some of those um, colorless Eldrazi tricks and pair it a little bit more closely with Thalia 
and um, Leon and Arbiter to make a much more kind of like directed kind of hateful core. Yeah, I think that really just speaks to how fast of a meta we have right now, where in order to have a, a strategy that's chromiate like this, you have to be playing two mana spells on turn one. Yeah. What's going on with no Aether Vial here? Is it just not enough value anymore? Chalice of the Void on one locks you out from it. Yeah, we could always side it out. Yeah, but it's a, it's a pretty bad non-bow game one. Yeah. Same reason why you can't really run Relic in a Mono Red Prism with Chalice either. Yeah. I think they're not trying to play fast, right? Or they're trying to play their hate fast. They're not trying to get their army out there fast. Exactly. Like what they're exactly. trying to do is lock them out and then kill them with a Reality Smasher. Yeah. Because, boy, a Reality Smasher through, like, somebody who might be trying to path to exile when you have Chalice out would be pretty bad. Um, you know, Reality Smasher already makes you discard an extra card if you target it with something. So there's just, there's a lot kind of going on here that the title of the deck is kind of a misnomer in some ways when you really look at this list, I think. Yeah, it's like a baby prison in some ways. I, right. I think Reality Smasher is just really well positioned against a lot of the cards because what, what can kill it in the big decks is Lightning Axe and you're already discarding a card to that and you got to discard another one. Then Dahlia's out, you're paying two. So how many cards are you down to get rid of there? Reality Smasher is just very powerful. Yeah. So Stan was saying that the um, the Electrodominance deck that we looked at with Restore Balance might be where he would throw some money. I feel like this deck makes me want to actually get a place at a Chalice of the Void, which I've never owned before, which would be, I don't know, a million zillion dollars to actually get. What are they, $100 a piece, $70 a piece, something like that? Yeah, like Brutal. the 60s. I don't know. Yeah. So getting those in Gemstone Caverns would be quite a reach, but I feel like those cards are going to be around, and it's probably just worth worth considering. But this does look like it has some game against the meta that's that's evolved at this point. Yeah, I mean, this looks like an all-in Chalice of the Void deck, right? I mean, it's even running Dismember as its removal for the 3 CMC. You know, it, it doesn't even have any path to exile, which blows my mind in a deck like this, but that's just where we're at. Can I ask about Gemstone Caverns here? Like, You know what, dude? I was going to ask the same thing. Please so if you have this card Gemstone in Cabin your works. library, are you always opting to be on the draw? No. It would really depend on the matchup, but it's really not worth losing that tempo to try to get a Chalice in, especially because you run the Simeon Spirit Guide as well. So right. I think you really do want to go on turn one, and it's just a benefit for going on turn two. Sure, and I guess you get to, and you know whether you're on the play or the draw before you make your mulligan decision. So in theory, even if you lose the die roll, then you can start mulligan aggressively to look for a chalice and hope you find either a cavern and a spirit guide in that hand as well. Yeah, it depends. I I wouldn't really aggressively mulligan past five for that unless it was a make or break situation. Can we slow this down for a second and explain to people who have maybe never played against a gemstone cavern before the card text and also what it lets you do because it's got two paragraphs of type on it that make it a little bit kind of inscrutable. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. So Gemstone Cavern is a legendary land that says if Gemstone Caverns is in your opening hand and you're not playing first, you may begin the game with Gemstone Caverns in play with a luck counter on it. If you do remove a card in your hand from the game and then it can tap to add a colorless to your mana pool Likewise, if Gemstone Cavern has a luck counter on it, instead add one more, or I'm sorry, instead add one mana of any color to your mana pool. Yeah, so obviously this is a particularly powerful card because starting the game with a land in play is unreal. I use these in a prison build, which once again is what's reminding me of this right now, this Eldrazi build. Having your turn one being you have two lands in play, sometimes you can do things like Exile Simeon Spirit Guide, Exile Simeon Spirit Guide, Chalice on two on turn one, your go, which is some decks just can't beat. That's amazing. I mean, it's so it's so hard to tell when you read that, that the, the up, 
the ups, upswing of it is that you're going to start with two mana. It's very, very hard to like through that, but that is the upshot, huh? You lose, you lose an extra card from your hand and then you do it. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why I would be hesitant to mulligan aggressively to try to get that because you're putting yourself down an additional card. And once again, if Chalice on one is going to win you the game, maybe just try to live that life and go for it. But it's a powerful card, but it is not without its drawbacks. And losing a card from your hand when you start is a very big drawback. Yeah. The more I talk about this deck, the sweeter I think it is. It looks very cool. One other thing that just jumped out to me was the sideboard has three Takatli Honor Guard, which is one in a white. It's from Ixalan. It's a 1-3 human soldier. Creatures entering the battlefield don't cause abilities to trigger, which is a card that seems very modern playable. And, you know, I guess I'm glad to see that it finally found a home, potentially. Yeah. Yeah, Torp Orb seeing more play. So why not a Torp Orb that can attack sometimes? Have you guys seen this deck before this weekend? I mean, the Taxes deck in the open was the kind of the traditional Eldrazi black-white Taxes build. But these two decks came out of, for me, nowhere pack in the chalice and no path and stuff like that so is this something somewhat new or is this kind of a reconfiguration of a existing deck or there's been eldrazi stompy decks going around for a while and i think this is just sort of a natural evolution or side path of that i have played against uh eldrazi stompy decks running chalice before but yeah. not one that's sort of more in on this white hate plan the, w- the way this deck is yeah, so I'm saying, like, we've been talking about that Eldrazi Stompy deck that has been steadily creeping up. It's interesting to see sort of this variation on it for sure. Yeah. I, I like I, it. It's cool. really cool. Yeah, absolutely. This is your style of deck, Dave. I think you should, uh, you know. There's so many cards here I would have to buy. Cavernous Souls, one Cavernous Souls. I have no Horizon Canopies, no Gemstone Caverns, no Chalice of the Void. It's like $400 in cards or $500 in cards. Ugh. Maybe I can load it up on Moto. Five hundred dollars for all those tournaments you don't play. Yeah, exactly. Maybe I could. <laughs> maybe I could play this in a league, though. I wonder how much it would cost to rent. This is definitely a, a manatraders.com deck. <laughs> yep. Let's do it. Get at us manatraders.com. By the way, somebody that I follow on Twitter retweeted that Manatraders had a post up where they put up the um, the most rented cards this yeah. week versus last week. And so I think I need to start following them on Twitter just to keep an eye on what's going on because it seems like a good peek behind the, the meta. Thoughts yeah. went up. Yeah, Thoughts went up. Lightning Bolt was at the top of their list. Faithless went down. So it's kind of interesting. All right. Are there any other decks that jumped out to y'all that you want to talk about? No, first and second are Blue Red Phoenix, which, you know, that's a thing we talk about all the time, but what are you going to do? Should we take a minute to point out that all but one of the Phoenix decks across both tournaments had multiple, or at least one to three Pyromancer's Ascensions, and this de- and that card might be the real deal? It sounds like you uh, just did that, Stan. You just pointed it out. I saw someone on Twitter say that, um, and I wish I could remember who it was, I'm sorry, say that adding Pyromancer's Ascension to Is It Phoenix is the same thing as KCI adding Psy, Master Thopterus. Like, it felt like that kind of level of powerful plan B, and I don't know, I haven't got a chance to play that deck with um, the Pyromancer plan yet, but it's a powerful card. Dave, I've done it. I've done it, and the stories are true. The card, when when it's live, it just wins you the game. You just yeah, get absolutely. all the value, you go through your whole deck, you make a big crackling drake, you get a two to three phoenixes minimum, it's awesome. Maybe maybe an issue, but one of the weaknesses of the phoenix deck was that it could run out of steam and get into top deck mode, and then when you're in that mode with Pyramid Ascension, all of a sudden a single cantrip just goes off and you're no longer in top deck mode, you have a card full of hands. 
Do you have a card full of hands or a handful of cards? Mm-hmm. You have a handful of cards. You got a, you got a foot, me. Full, foot full Edward of cards. 40 cards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it p- plays particularly well with Thoughts Cower, and it also, I think, lends itself well to the main deck Snapcaster Mages. Mm, absolutely. Since you're playing all these cantrips. Sweet. Um, it's worth noting that if you cast a spell like a braid with that out, you don't get to choose a new mode. Yes. That is a good thing to remember. We saw that at GPLA a couple sure of weeks did, ago yeah. that someone someone accidentally did that on camera. So He was going to win either way, so it's not that big of a deal, but it is worth noting. There's a new warden in town to remind you of the rules. Yeah. <laughs> I told you, boy. First day. All right, fellas. I think that wraps up our breakdown for this week. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we are diving into... Tron. So guys, um, we're going to talk about the deck many people love to hate this week. But that's like every deck anymore, I feel like. Besides Eldrazi Taxes. <laughs> I think there's a special vitriol in people's hearts for Tron, though. Something about it is just so quote-unquote unfair to a lot of people and seems very bizarre at first well it might be this weird math it does so that's right everybody we're going to talk about how one plus one plus one can equal seven welcome to tron talk a tron player walks into a bar the bartender says this that beer is gonna be six bucks the tron player hands him three bucks says keep the change yeah You did not write this joke. No, I hope you no. know who wrote this joke. No, I mean, I don't know who actually wrote it. I saw Tom Ross tweet it, though. So. Okay. Would you call it a joke, even? <laughs> it's more of a funny observation about <laughs> Tron. Yeah. And life. What's and the deal with all this Tron? So, Dave, tell us a little bit about the Urza lands, because you saw them long before we did. What can I tell you about Urza's lands? Since back in 1995, we did not call them Tron lands at first. I don't know. I mean, I think that they're sort of, you know, they're from the age of magic where stuff didn't always have to make sense. Right. In order for where where we just would do stuff that totally broke the rules all the time. And so it's a set of three lands. Uh, it's Urza's Power Plant, Urza's Mine, and Urza's Tower. And when they're in play together, all three of them, instead of making a single mana each, Power Plant makes two, Mine makes two, and Tower makes three. What was like the original thing that they were meant to cast back in the day? Colossus of Sarnia yeah. <laughs> was the card that they were supposed to cast, I think, which was like an 11 CMC 10-10 that you had to pay nine mana to untap or something like that. Like It was a crazy card. And I remember, um, so they were first printed in Antiquities. That card was also in Antiquities. You know, Antiquities was just an artifact-themed set. And, okay. and so they had these lands in there. I don't think it was entirely clear what you were supposed to do with them. I mean, you could also do some crazy stuff with Candelabra of Taunos with them as well. So you could, you know, have Tron lands, pump a bunch of mana into that, into your Candelabra, untap your lands, and kind of make a huge amount of mana. Now, when I was a kid and I had a, the Tron set, the my set of Tron lands, I um, definitely just used to use it to cast giant fireballs. <laughs> and that's pretty much it. You you know, you'd have a deck with like Mana Vaults and Basalt Monolith and a bunch of Urza's Lands. And then you would try to cast a like 15 point fireball on somebody. And that was not the best way to use these cards. It sounds fun. But um, I think these cards are from a time before they were thought out interset synergies. And just making seven mana was cool enough. And there doesn't need to be a payoff. People will figure it out. 
And they just yeah. reprinted them in eighth and ninth just for kicks or something like that. Or what? <laughs> I mean, who knows what they were doing at that point in time and, and how, I mean, eighth, eighth edition is, as we know, the, the place where so many weird problems and all of Zach's favorite cards yes, for modern yeah. come from because it's got in staring bridge. It's got blood moon. It's the Tron lands are in that set. So there's just Doesn't all have, this like, weird choke. It does have yep. choke and boil. Yeah, choke is in there and boil. Yep, exactly. It's just it's like it's like it's like going back to Alpha, where everything's just hate cards. The set. Well, for what it's worth, there were cards that were voted into eighth and ninth. They had polls that would go up on the mothership back in the day. So oh, interesting. Yeah, some of them. I believe that Blood Moon is in over Dwarven Miner. For what it's worth. Well, thank God we don't have that broken <laughs> yeah. card in. I mean, basically, did the power, did the Urza lands do anything for a really long time until like they sort of appeared in in modern, early modern? I mean, in my memory, they sort of weren't pow- powerful enough for vintage, and that was the only place that they could be played. Yeah. Oh, sure. So since they weren't in standard, they weren't pow- powerful enough for vintage. They sort of just sat as an oddity in people's binders until uh, the modern format came along. I'm sure people use them for other stuff. Don't at me. And I mean, like er- early on, because CloudPost was legal, like no one was really touching the Tron lands directly because they could just do so much more mana generation with cloud the CloudPost lands or, or what are those lands called? Like Locus or Lotus? Yeah, yeah, the Locus, the there Locus lands. And there was kind of they were being used in some uh, some sort of combo decks just for like mana value, but broadly, the first time that Tron showed itself to look like Tron was in early 2012 by this moto player black generation who forwarded a daily with something that looks not unlike contemporary red green tron and so it was designed to piece together tron as quickly as possible using sylvan scrying using ancient stirrings using expedition map and the chromatic stars and spheres uh, called the eggs and this is the first deck that really realized that if you're making seven mana you can play karn liberated on turn three and that was the first person to play the full playset. And apparently people really took notice of this, and Tron has been Troning ever since. So I'm happy about that. I think Tron's pretty rad. So we should give a little bit of a disclaimer here. Shane is someone who has played Tron in the past and, in fact, has an entire Russian Tron deck. It's like se- it's like 71 out of 75 are Russianed out, and I'm getting my last Karn for the main deck soon. So... As long as we're on this topic, can you explain why you decided to get this deck in Russian? Because I know you, and I know you don't get Russian cards for any other deck. <laughs> well, I think I think I just thought it would be funny. Like it just seems like the best deck to get in Russian. Like all, it's just it's you know it's all silver. It's you don't speak you know, Russian or read Russian. We also should add that you are not Russian. <laughs> Dan, you know the real reason is that the the Russian. Tron lands, uh, they were black border because they were the first printed edition in that language. And that's when they were still doing the first printings get black border and reprints get white border. Mm. So if you want non-foil black border Tron lands, you have to get Russian. And then it just snowballed from there. I see. Totally makes sense. Yes. Much better than probably, Duolingo. Probably would have been cheaper to just get Antiquities ones and then get English cards of everything oh, else. Oh, but those sure, are, Those are hideous. He needs the corset I mean, I, printings. I, I, I actually already had the whole deck in English. I've just been replacing the pieces. <laughs> I can respect that. Oh my that. gosh. It's fun no. to rebuy your favorite deck. I've, I've bought Scred three times. <laughs> we just found out what Shane's Scred is, and yeah, it's exactly. Tron. <laughs> I mean, so I mean, what do you guys think about Tron? I mean, depending on who you ask, some people think it's like this like elegant, 
piece of deck building that uh, using their chromatic spheres and stars is just like a genius move, and and it's been just this you know elegant piece of design. And some people think it's just the dumbest deck, and it keeps many strategies out of the the meta game altogether. Um, so my relationship with Tron has been sort of sorted over the years because when I first got into modern. Um, pretty much after I graduated from Storm, I tried playing Jeskai Tempo, and at that point, Tron was just unbeatable. And uh, like I always thought it was just going to be like one of the hardest decks to beat. And then over time, I learned about Blood Moon and uh, Ceremonious Rejection and some other cheap spells and learned how a deck strategy can be tuned against Tron. And now it's not so scary anymore, especially since I know how it works. And likewise, in preparation for this episode, I started playing Tron on Moto, and I kind of just love it, to be honest, and fully anticipate playing it on Moto more often, even after we're done recording. Everyone's a secret, Timmy. <laughs> Interesting. And Tron's a very Timmy deck, right? It's just like, it's not, it's both competitive and spiky, but also really fun to play and kind of silly in how, how well it works. I hate it. Oh! <gasps> I, I I don't I don't throw, cast shade on anybody who wants to play it, but it's just not for me. And we can talk a little bit more about that. I also picked up the deck on Moto over the last week or so and played it through a few leagues. And uh, you know, it it was one of those situations where it just felt like I never had it. And in my memory, I feel like every time I play against Tron, they always have it. And so maybe I just don't know what I'm doing yet. But it just was not not for me. And I dislike playing against it because I just hate Worm Coil Engine. <laughs> I love that oh, card so much. So, ah, so annoying. So I am someone who plays Tron, but I play the blue Tron version. But I want to talk about what Shane said about the deck being quote-unquote brain dead. And I think people use language like that when they mean a deck doesn't have a lot of decision trees in it. So in Tron, you're, you're not trying to do a lot of different things. You're trying to do the same thing repeatedly, which is get to seven mana on turn three and play a Karn, play a Worm Coil, play your other big threat that it's hard to deal with. So I think that it's... If you want to say it's easy to play in a way that you don't have to make a lot of decisions, that would be correct. But I don't think it's easy to play in that there's a lot of skill involved with the mulliganing and sequencing of things. Yeah. I mean, so long story short, what Tron's doing is it's trying to get the three different Urza lands on the battlefield, forming the Urza Tron, which if you kids don't know, it's a reference to Voltron. That's a, you know, an 80s Japanese cartoon where the, you know, the, the, the robot lions form the really big robot. Called, it's called anime, Shane. Please, a little respect. It's a lifestyle. <laughs> it wasn't called anime when no. I was six. And no. I watched it every day. We, we, okay. we, yeah, we called it. We called it. We called it cartoons. Then it became Japanimation. Then we all learned it's called anime. Yeah, I loved Voltron when I was a kid. Oh, I had yeah, a great. giant. I had a giant Voltron. The five lions came apart. Yeah, loved it. It was sick. Did you have the metal one or the plastic one? Dude? I had the metal one. Oh, I had the yeah. metal one that was recalled because it had lead paint on it. <laughs> So that explains a lot about you, Dave. Sure does. <laughs> so then you cast, you know, you use that mana to cast, you know, colorless or mostly colorless spells, and we're going to talk about what those spells are in a bit. So let's first talk about how Tron is trying to actually execute on this strategy, right? So in my opinion, and I think most people's opinion, the core strategy is to make Tron. Make Tron. You have to make Tron, because if you're not making Tron, you can't cast your big spells. 
And you typically aren't going to be able to make Tron by just naturally drawing all three Urza lands off the top of your deck, unless you're you know really lucky. So you have to rely on these other spells to get the Urza lands onto the battlefield. And the main way you're going to do that is with land tutors. So there's eight of those in the deck that directly just get any land you want out of, the, out of your deck. And one is Expedition Map, which is a one mana artifact. And then you pop it for two mana. And then when you do that, you get any land you want, and it goes into your hand. And then there's also Sylvan Scrying, which is one and a green, and that does the same thing. It's just a sorcery speed spell, and you get any land you want out of your deck. And then there's one more that helps with this too, and that is Ancient Stirrings. Oh, ever hear ever hear of that card? Yes. So this is a really interesting card for the for the strategy because it lets you get nearly anything in your deck because lands count as colorless cards. So it's a single green mana. It digs five cards deep into your deck to locate a quote-unquote colorless card. So that's basically, unless you're running Dismember in the main, that's any card you have in there. And so you can find your Urza lands or find a payoff, whatever you need. It digs deeper than any cantrip in modern, and people dislike it because yeah. it's, it's pretty darn good. Yeah, and the trick is, you know, it doesn't necessarily get you the right Tron piece, but maybe no. it sorts you to an expedition map that you can use, or maybe you get lucky and it gets you to the Tron piece that you need. It's generally kind of a value card to get you to a threat that you want, but yeah. in a pinch, it can be something that that can help you get to that, that third Tron piece that you're looking for. Yeah. But Shane, yes, two of Dave. those were green spells. <laughs> yes, Dave. How does a deck that mostly has colors mana generators generate green mana? This is where I think like the secret genius of the deck comes in, and it they runs. Add it basic runs forests. forests. That's how. <laughs> <laughs> and cut. Yes, yeah. It's it's the fortified basic forests. Full stop. Um, no, but the the real genius is the these the chromatic effects. So it has four chromatic stars and four chromatic spheres, and these are called eggs. And I think they're pretty much the glue that holds the deck together because what you want to be doing early on, and we'll talk about sequencing later, of course, but you need to be playing your Urza lands and not forests. And so you have to have a way to generate green mana while you're also digging through your deck. And so these one mana artifacts can then be sacrificed for paying another one mana. They then filter your mana into any color, which is going to be green in this case, while also drawing you a card. And so then when you have this green mana floating in your pool, that's how you cast your Sylvan Scryings or your Ancient Stirrings, or after some sideboarding, you might have some Thrag Tusks, or in the main deck, you might have a World Breaker, which we'll outline later. I have a question about these eggs. Oh, please. So this is something that I've really uh, struggled with, and I think I've been learning more. If, if your Tron opponent leads on a turn one egg and you have artifact removal, do you use it on that or do you save it? You will 100% use it on that. Yeah, there we go. Because they're almost uh, certainly relying on popping it for green on their second turn. And also it's while digging through their deck to probably cast something like an Ancient Stirrings or a Sylvan Scrying. And so you definitely can hamstring someone's path to Tron by uh, hitting their early chromatic effect. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's something where at first I feel like I undervalued the card and thought like, oh, it's just a little bit of filtering, I'll save it something bigger. And then I talked to my opponent after and they'd be like, oh, if you had destroyed that, I would have had two ancient stirrings in my head that were dead. So by yeah. not destroying, you allow me to see 10 more cards in my library. Wow. That's a great, great point. I had not thought of that before. And okay, so touching on Zach's point, do you think the eggs are important enough? And, and this is jumping ahead a little bit and we'll probably touch on this more later. Are the eggs so 
pivotal to this deck that you want to be siding in artifact removal just so you can try to hit them in the early turns and then potentially hit an O stone later on? Oh yeah, almost certainly. You want to if you have artifact removal, you want to be you want to be casting it. I mean, I want to bring in like a Shatterstorm. Probably it's going to be too late, but if you have like an Ancient Grudge or something like that, that can do a lot of work. Stony silence. Yeah, stony silence, my friends. Oh yeah, we'll talk about that yeah. anyway. Yeah. And so another thing that helps you churn through your deck is the main deck Relic of Progenitus, which is usually a two to three of. And so it's not a tutor. Uh, it's not a mana filterer, but what it does, it's a single mana, and it can be popped for another single mana, and that exiles all graveyards while drawing you a card. So that draws you through the deck, provides incidental value of removing the graveyards against any deck that's going to use it for their own value. And so it's just kind of a f- more or less free spell in Tron, and in a metagame like we have right now, where there's a lot of graveyard shenanigans, it's a great inclusion Relic can provide some mind games or mini games as well. Like against Dredge, it can create this whole thing of they're trying to force you to pop it, they're trying to play around it, and it can just make the game go an extra turn or two longer that you wouldn't have, and all of a sudden, there's Ugin. Exactly. Exactly, Zach. So, guys, what are you going to do with all this Tron mana we're generating? Cast EDH staples. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Colorless. Colorless EDH staples. Big, stupid cards that are really fun to play with. Do you guys want to go through the Planeswalkers first? I think yeah. Let's hear let's hear what the the big the big cards are. So we're gonna start with the planeswalkers and the poster boy. I guess Karn is male. Uh, Karn uh, Karn is genderless, but uh, allows other okay. people to identify him as male for what it's worth. Oh, okay. So the genderless golem, Karn Liberated. He's cost seven mana. So you know you have your three lands. You make seven mana. You cast a Karn Liberated. That's what happens every game, I think. So he comes down with six loyalty, and his plus four. Ridiculous. Target player exiles a card from their hand. Uh, the minus three, which then puts him in lightning bolt range. You exile a target permanent. That's any permanent. Not just a creature, not just anything. You know, It could be a land, whatever. The minus 14, which can happen <laughs> two turns after he's played. I guess the third turn after he's played. Restarts the game. Leaving in exile, all non-auras exiled with Karn Liberated. Put those cards onto the battlefield under your control. So the turn three Karn is kind of the stereotypical, like, you know, game ending turn three play, even though Karn doesn't really do anything to lower your opponent's life total or, you know, put any pressure on the opponent really immediately. So why do you guys think turn three Karn is hated so much? (laughs) (laughs) It's like the best Liliana ever. Yeah, it's an absurd Liliana. Hitting someone's land can just end the game technically, sort of. And you know what? I think that's such an undervalued use of his exile ability, especially if your opponent is missing some of their land drops. If you take out, you know, one of their only sources of a color, you might just win on the spot because they have no outs at that point. Yeah, I think um, Karn being colorless also has some neat fringe interactions as well, just because it's removal that gets around any sort of protection or anything like that as well. Mm, Yeah, good point. So the other walker that gets played is usually a pair of Ugin the Spirit Dragons, and that's an 8-mana walker from Fate Reforged. And so that comes down with 7 loyalty, and it can sweep away anything that's not colorless with its minus X that removes anything with X or fewer CMC. Uh, And then it can also plus 2 to deal 3 damage to any target, which also includes your opponent. Uh, It's worth noting that that plus 2 is the card Ghostfire, which is printed in Future Sight, which is an ability of Ugin. So his plus 2 is him casting a signature spell. 
Oh, that's so cool. and he's that's in the so flavor cute. text of Ghostfire. I yeah, think, exactly. Actually, long before anybody knew who he was. And the minus ten, which you do just for giggles sometimes, I imagine you gain seven life, draw seven cards, and put up to seven permanents from your hand onto the battlefield. So. What's weird about Ugin costing 8 is that it can be surprisingly worse than something like Oblivion Stone because the mana to Wrath can't be split across multiple turns and he can't do anything against Artifact or Colorless Strategies like Affinity or the Mirror Match. And if you had to clear a 7 CMC card like Gurmag Angler or Bedlam Reveler, it uses up all of his starting loyalty. But he essentially can win the game on the spot versus so many decks as he just can come down and like minus three or minus four and still be there with three or two or three loyalty and then just start pinging the opponent and then threatening to exile anything they play into it. So it's, it's a brutal turn four play. Yeah. I honestly can't believe how good this card is at this point in retrospect. It was, it was a very good standard card. And then here it's like a whole other thing. Yeah. For, for what it's worth, he's not pinging, he's bolting. So like three damage is a lot. I think the turn four Ugin is another underappreciated part of Tron. And we talk often about turn three Karn, but Ugin by itself being able to basically swing a game that you may otherwise have been losing against spirits or humans or elves or just a bunch of small creatures, it's it's so devastating. And then his plus ability being able to target individual creatures that your opponent may try to play or just go to the face. It's almost surprising to me that he's a two of because of how impactful he can be in the game. I mean, it's just that he cost eight, so he only can come out. He can only come down on turn four, and then against certain matchups, he's pretty bad. So you yeah. don't want to have too many of them, especially in a deck that also has two Ulamogs. But we'll yes. talk about that in a minute. <laughs> um, so want to move on to the creatures? Yeah, I can take that, please. So, in addition to the suite of planeswalkers, the deck runs some very powerful creatures as well. So among the creatures in here is one of my just absolute favorites in a worm coil engine. Ah, D- Dave's favorite too. I hate this card so much. So worm coil engine, if you don't know what it does, is a six mana six, six artifact with both a lifelink and death touch. And when the card it, uh, dies, it creates two, three, three tokens. One of them is lifelink. One of them is death touch. So unless you have a clean exile answer to this card, it is just brutal to deal with. It's such a stupid card. I like it, it really so is. much. It's like, so it, dumb. It, seem, it seems under-costed at six. It's just, you get so much value out of it. Yeah, I, I just remember when it was revealed back then during the the pre-release season, I just I, I thought it was fake when I first saw it, because it was so good. <laughs> well, what's funny about this card, too, is like maybe a year, a year and a half ago, I remember reading like a big Tron guide, and the person who wrote it was like, Worm Coil's life in Tron is probably going to reach its limit someday as, as more powerful cards replace it. And here we are with three to four of them being see, seeing play. Yeah, I mean, I think that just says something about what modern has become, right? Where, you know, a field in a field against aggressive decks, it just really kind of bl- takes their strategy completely off the table. So if you are playing against, like, Mono Red Phoenix or you're playing against Burn or something... I think if you if you can get Worm Coil down, it just really changes the whole everything. So in addition to the Life Link and Death Touch and Worm, we have two to three Walking Blista running most decks. Yeah. Yeah, and this is probably the newest card that appears in this deck, right? You can almost say that the deck hasn't really evolved much since this card was printed. Yeah, I think there's a pretty high threshold for cards making it into this deck. So Walking Blista is one of the few cards in a long time that has passed that threshold. 
Yeah, what's cool about it is it's one of the few threats that Tron can play a little bit early if it needs to in the main deck. So it can ping down like a really valuable small creature if you just need to do some fast removal. But then if you cast it late game for a bucket load of mana and then you can keep just sinking mana into it, you can just wipe a board, you can just go straight to their dome and just win the game really quickly. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's ability to come down on turn two and be able to kill a mana dork is not to be discounted. That can definitely swing some games. For sure. Yeah, and I think that might explain why card like Hangerback Walker never really worked out in this deck, because it seems like producing a ton of mana in a colorless spell would make Hangerback an ideal card for this deck. And yet, because it doesn't have as much versatility and utility, it's just kind of like a value card. Yeah, the versatility is what does it. You're right, Stan. So in addition, we also have anywhere from zero to one copies of Worldbreaker. It's a big range there. Yeah. <laughs> None to one. When it first showed up, people were trying it as a two of. Yeah, I remember that for sure. Yes, yeah, seven mana is a lot, especially with one being green. So the card That's itself, the hard part. yeah, is six in a green. It's devoid, so it technically is colorless, even though there's green in the mana cost. Which is relevant because you find it with... Ancient Stirrings. So it has a cast trigger that exiles an artifact or enchantment or land. Yeah, cast trigger is a really good idea. Yeah. They're from the Blind Eternities, okay? They don't hew to our reality (laughs) or follow our rules. Pushed Mythic Cell packs. It's also an Oath of the Gatewatch, so it's completely useless anyway, the entire set. (laughs) Aww. It's also a 5-7 with reach. 5-7 with reach, exactly. And it has a recursive ability where you can pay a trigger and sack a land and get it back. Yeah, why not? Just make it recur. Yeah. It's, I mean, it has the green mana requirement, so you can't cast it on turn three uh, ever, I think. But right. that, cast, that cast trigger is so powerful and flexible. The recursion and the reach, it just offers a lot of value. Yeah, and like uh, I think this really is another testament to how high the threshold is for cards to make it into Tron. We just all laughed at how ridiculous this was and how many lines of text it has, and some decks don't even run a single copy. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of fallen out of favor recently. So this is a card that, with Shane's advice, I've been playing in my Tron list online. And I think it might be useful right now in particular because it gets rid of... Pyromancer's Ascension? Shane, you had mentioned to me to play it. Well, I mean, I think it's worth playing. What's funny is Jim Davis sides it out against Is It Phoenix, which what? I think is... Yeah, I think it's wild, but I don't know. I was, he must I have was, better stuff to do. Ain't got time, baby. The deck is good against it anyway, and like you said, it does take a little time to get there. So it might just be that you need to affect the board a little bit more quickly, but man, I think it does a lot of work against uh, Phoenix decks, but we'll see. So I want to talk about the next card, please. Please give me this one. You got it. Take it. Ulamog, the ceaseless hunger. Would you say you're hungry for it? I'm I'm fiending. I got, I'm, I'm, I'm Ulamogging for Ulamog. He is a 10-10 for 10, which can happen as early as turn 4 if you have made Tron and have another tower in hand. So Ulamog has a cast trigger that exiles two target permanents, okay? And so when you do this, often the game just ends on the spot. Because if you if you play him on, play it on turn 4, then and you take out two of their lands, then they might just be so far behind they can't catch up. You get rid of the only things they have going to stop you, and they can't catch up from that. I've had opponents scoop against uh, Ulamog so many times. Oh yeah, absolutely, and he's it's it's indestructible too, right? So that's just on top. 
And when it, when it first started appearing, I would have it cast against me and think, okay, they've destroyed my lands. I still have removal. I can get them through this. Oh, no, I can't kill that creature. Oh, goodness. Yeah, so Ulamog also ends the game really quickly, even if they don't scoop immediately, where when it attacks, the defending player has to exile the top 20 cards of their library. So Ulamog eats up their library. So no matter what, this game is going to end really quickly unless they have an exile or if they're if you only have one creature out, like an edict effect or something like that. Yeah. Pacifism. That's really popular <laughs> and modern these days. Yeah. <laughs> the final big card that the deck plays is the sweeper artifact oblivion stone which is typically a three or four of so you it cast it you cast it for three and it has two abilities for four mana you can tap it to put a fate counter on a target permanent and then five mana you tap and sack it and it destroys every non-land permanent without fate counters on the card and removes all existing fate counters so this is just a great wrath that can sit on the battlefield and threaten anything that gets played into it while also adding fake counters to your own permanence. And what's good about Ostone, like I said before, is because it costs three to cast and then five to activate, it allows you to fight through hate more easily than like a big sweeper like Ugin, where you have to have all eight mana at once. So I can't count the number of times where I've played, you know, I've had a damping sphere or a blood moon in my face and I, I am just naturally drawing my lands and getting there. I play an Ostone on three. Then when I get to five mana, you know, bye-bye Damping Sphere, bye-bye Blood Moon, and I'm off to the races with like, you know, 10 mana at my disposal. Yeah. Nevin Ural's disc is good. Imagine if it was better. Showing your age there, Dave. I know. Hey, there are people who are lobbying for that to be reprinted in Modern Horizons, which I think That's would true. just be kind of absurd if this deck could run more than four Wraths suddenly. But anyway... I mean, people know that card because I think it was reprinted in Commander or some other supplementary product fairly oh, yeah. recently. Yeah, Oblivion Stone was a card that was in, the, I believe, the original Commander sets. So I had a few copies that way and never thought it'd see the light of day in Modern. Yeah, that's a scary card to play against because if your opponent taps out for Oblivion Stone, they can pretty much just wrath you whenever they, whenever they want. It sort of reminds me of Relic of Progenitus in that way where you start to play this mini game about how am I going to get around the O-Stone? Do I need to just kill them on the spot because they're threatening to crack it as soon as I have a board state that they can't deal with? So that's that's a scarier card than I think people give it credit for. Yeah, it has pros and cons. It's not. It's kind of like a settle the wreckage in that you can activate it on the opponent's turn so that, you know, if they're swinging into you, uh, you pop it, you wrath their board. But at the same time, they also know it's there. Right. So they're not going to play into it. They're just going to make you pop it. So there's there's some pros and cons to it. But broadly, I think it's a pretty pro. Let's just blaze through this mana base. I mean, by and large, it's pretty straightforward. But I think there's one card I do want to highlight for you all. So, of course, you run four of each Urza land, right? And you run four to five forests. If you don't run five forests, you will run either a utility land, like something like an Urza's Factory that can churn out little one ones. Uh, you can run a second ghost quarter. You can run a horizon canopy, which is kind of my go-to fifth forest land. Cause you can tutor it up as a cycler in the late game. So like, say you top deck, a, a expedition map or a Sylvan scrying and you're like, well, I can't, I don't need any more mana. You can just tutor it up a horizon canopy and cycle to a new card. So that's fun. And the damage you take from it early on for green isn't really game breaking. So I find one of pretty useful. You're going to run a Ghost Quarter, which is a flexible utility land. And there's a variety of reasons that Tron really wants a Ghost Quarter. Because you have a really hard time interacting with your opponent's lands. 
So creature lands can be a pain for like Ugin and Oblivion Stone to hit, and it really can disrupt a mirror match. Uh, so if you know you're playing against a Tron opponent, you can you can tutor up a Ghost Quarter, hit their Tron piece, and if you really need to, you can fix your own mana with it. And so because you can tutor up a Ghost Quarter with your with your land tutor spells, it's a great one of for sure. How do you fix your mana with it? You zap your own mana, my dude. Ghost Quarter yourself. Get a green. You've never done this before. Never thought to. What, do you never go score yourself? You know, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> what that's, do you mean? That's that level two play you get from playing a lot of Tron. Hey, guys, Stan's never ghost quartered himself. Look at this, Jum Oak. <laughs> uh, so I have a question for you, Shame. Yeah. Why ghost quarter over Field of Ruin? couple reasons. Doesn't cost any mana to activate. That's important, right? That's kind of the main thing. Okay, thank you. You don't really care about about the uh, mana parity either. Yeah, exactly. Which with you know with blue white control when you're running field of ruin, you really want to keep up where you don't miss a land drop. With Tron, you're searching things up. You really just need you just need your Tron pieces. So if you ghost quarter to get rid of something, it's worth it. That's exactly right, Dave. Yeah, because like you know a control deck wants to keep hitting its land drops because it needs to cast things fairly. Whereas Tron will just cast things unfairly. So the one of the most interesting lands that's actually challenging to use at times is Sanctum of Ugin, which is a one of. And so when Eye of Ugin got banned after Eldrazi Winter, this also hurt Tron quite a bit because Eye of Ugin was this inevit- inevitability engine. So you could pay seven mana, tap the eye, grab a colorless creature card in your deck, and put it in your hand. And so you could do that over and over and over again, which was ridiculous. Yeah. But so Sanctum does a similar inevitability role to grab a needed colorless creature card, uh, most often something huge like Ulamog. And so the way you use it is when you cast a colorless spell with CMC seven or greater, you can then sacrifice the Sanctum and search your library for any colorless creature card in your deck. So when you then peel up the Ulamog, then the opponent's like, oh, great, I'm going to have an Ulamog come hitting me in a turn or two. And the game typically is going to end pretty soon after that. So guys, you all played this deck this week in some way, shape, or form. So what did you think you found to be the most challenging part of playing the deck? Mulligating, absolutely. Dave, Stan, do you guys agree? For sure. I, I obviously understand how it's important, but I'm still figuring out like the mulligan decisions to the point that like I've kept questionable sevens and got rewarded for it. So maybe yeah. that's lucky. I, I just found it really hard. It's one of the things that I actually disliked about playing this deck the most. Oh, was you're telling me. Yeah. Being, feeling like it really was just sort of like a slot machine vibe mm-hmm. where I'm like, okay, let's draw these seven. And uh, if I'm, if I, I know immediately if I can keep it or not. Although I, I, I didn't because I don't have that many reps in on with the deck, but there's definitely a lot of ways to rubrics to put that together. And um, I had a hard time with that. And then I had a hard time being okay with the fact that sometimes I just had to go to four and then it's like, I don't even know what I'm looking for if I go to four and feel like I can win. So I think that the mulliganing problem is one of the things that actually makes Tron good, but also one of the things that makes it frustrating to play when you first start. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of prison in that regard where sometimes you just keep drawing the wrong half of your deck in your opening hands and you just have to keep putting it back. Like, all right, this is three Carns and two forest. I can't keep this. Yeah. 
you know, it forces you to ask, like, which non-game do you prefer? Do you right. want to, like, draw to three and then and suck because you don't get anything and your opponent just outplays you with all the cards they have? Or do you want to have a non-game because you can't make Tron or you can't find any of your payoffs? Yeah, I think that's kind of the best question, Stan. And I think we'll talk a little bit about the math as well there. Because understanding how to look at your opener and determine two things is really important, right? Like, does this hand make Tron? And if it does, how many turns is it going to take me to do that? Because sometimes, like, a turn for Tron on the draw isn't going to be enough even. So, you know, the, that path to Tron can be as simple as just having all three Tron lands if you're super lucky, two Tron lands and a, a map, maybe like a single land and some chromatic effects and a couple searchers can be sufficient. It really blows my mind that I think what you're about to say is that a land that is Ursa's Tower, Forest, Sylvan Scrying, Sylvan Scrying, Karn, a Worm Coil Engine is like not keepable. Oh, no, really, not at all. Because it's terrible. Beca- because it's like <laughs> I have payoffs. I'm gonna get to That's Tron what, turn on turn four, four and and but I'm not gonna do anything else in advance. But it's not gonna be fast enough. And my experience in playing the deck was that these hands that looked pretty good to me when I was doing it, because I'm like I'm gonna get there. It's gonna take me a minute, but I'm gonna get there. And then I'm gonna go turn you know turn four Karn, turn five Worm Coil Engine, and it's gonna be fine. It wasn't fine. Yeah, it's it's challenging. And I think that it's there's a lot of sort of rules and non-rules and heuristics and guidance. I think a lot of it comes from being regimented in your thought process and understanding your odds as best as you can. And you know, like we said before, you just really want to be playing a Tron piece each turn, if possible. And so if like your path to Tron relies on playing that forest, like you mentioned, Dave, in your first three turns, I think that is a very shippable hand. And so let's say you don't have like a perfect clear path to Tron, but you're on like four or it's like a very promising five. The next step you need to understand are your percentages to draw into a needed card in time to form a fast Tron. So like depending on your risk tolerances and the payoffs you have in hand, that might be worth keeping, right? So like let's say let's say you mold a five and you're like, okay, if I have one of these other two Tron lands in the top three or four cards of my deck then I'm going to be okay. I'll have a turn three Tron probably, or maybe like a, a, a turn four. You know, you might have a turn three Tron, but you can't really cast anything with it, or you might have a turn four with something in hand. So you have to be able to kind of balance the odds of getting the cards you need versus mulliganing it again. And I think there's a number of different philosophies when it comes to these heuristics, like Yoshihiko Ikawa, who wrote a really awesome black green Tron guide a, a year or so ago. He's pretty strict. He's like, you need to be able to form Tron by turn three or by turn four, only if you have a sweeper, like an Ugin or an O-Stone, which can be cast for eight mana on turn four, right? Or like Ari Lax in a recent article, actually, I think that was like today, which is a pretty good article, actually. Um, he stated, if it doesn't Tron up, don't keep it. And that you want to play your games to get that turn three Tron, not turn four, just because of speed of the format right now. But Owen Turtenwald, who's this huge proponent of playing Tron and Modern over the past you know, year or so, he's a little looser than I am personally. He likes to keep more speculative hands with some middling odds, in my opinion, to produce Tron. But he kind of really trusts the deck to give him a necessary piece off the top of the deck. You know, he says some stuff like, you know, all I need is an Urza's Tower or an Urza's Mine in my top three cards, and I can cast a turn three Karn or a turn three Worm Coil, and one of those should be good enough to win the game by itself. But like, if the odds of drawing one of those eight cards in three draws is like 38%, I'm not super comfortable with that myself. 
so I think really under like having those odds in the back of your mind and being able to say, if I make it, is this hand so good that I'm never going to lose the game? You know, you have to think about that kind of stuff more than, you know, I like doing sometimes. One of the things that I think you're not saying, but if you read between the lines, what I'm hearing is it's more important to have your turn three Tron than it is to have one of the payoffs. Oh, yeah. Because the payoffs will come, but being able to create the lands and produce all the mana is really what this deck wants first and foremost. So we were crunching some numbers earlier today in our Slack, and let's say you just start your hand with no threats at all in hand, and you need to have a, th- a threat on turn three for your turn three Tron, your odds of drawing into some kind of threat to use the mana with is like something like 80%, right? And that's much better. So so there were a couple caveats with that. Sure, sure, sure. You had to see five cards across three turns. So if you yeah. see five cards, say through chromatic effects or an ancient stirrings, you know, which it gives you even more cards to see, if you see that, that was the math that we happened to run was basically that someone who had two chromatic, uh, eggs to break would, would see five cards and they're 86% to draw one of the threats. Now we didn't differentiate between the threats when we ran these, this math, but it was 86% to draw one of the 17 cards or 18 cards that are threats. Yeah. So, I mean, long story short, your odds are much better to draw threats than they are to, say, draw a needed Urza land. And that's really important, I think, to keep in mind. I really don't even look at my threats yeah. very much at all. Unless it's like, you know, unless it's a, an O-Stone or an Ugin and I have a turn four path, then I'm like, okay, I can, I'm can i following one of Yoshihiko's rules, right? And I, I like Yoshihiko's rules. I think they're they're pretty good. They're pretty good guidelines for most people to think about. I think if you're someone like o- Owen then you might have a better understanding of your odds and have a better understanding of, of what you can get off the top of your deck and you can have a little more flexibility, perhaps. I don't really think people mulligan enough when it comes to Tron, right? Like, I see plenty of people keep seven and they play like a turn two forest or a turn three expedition map and they didn't really have a clear path to Tron in their opener. There's like no reason to keep a hand like that because Tron mulligans so incredibly well because so many of the pieces are redundant and interchangeable from one another. So, you know, if you if you don't have a, a good path to Tron in your 7, you have plenty of opportunity to get it in your 6 and your 5. Many Tron players can tell you stories of winning off of balls to 4, even to 3. So you mentioned a lot that Tron mulligans well, and we talk about all the tools that take you on your path to turn three Tron. Mm -hmm. And I think some things that is worth noting is typically the deck runs, what, 19 lands? Yes. So it's not that uncommon to open up a seven, a six, or a five where you see no lands, um, which I think feels bad. And likewise, I don't know how much I can count on the eggs as my path to Tron if they're only drawing a card. So if like specifically for the chromatic effects, all they do is draw a card. I don't know if I can really factor that in in terms of my plan for turn three Tron. Yeah, I mean the main thing you can do with that is think about do if I need a certain card, what are my odds to get to one of those cards via just seeing more cards than my natural draws, right? What you really want to be able to look at is am I able to make green mana? to then cast my Ancient Stirrings or my Sylvan Scrying, right? So that's why you need your eggs. So they provide a, a couple benefits in that you see more cards to naturally draw into your lands, and then if you don't do that, then you can be, you're able to use the mana to cast your green tutoring spells. 
Yeah, but like you said, Stan, I don't, I don't think that you should, at least in your maybe seven or sixes, you shouldn't just say, okay, I'm going to use this chromatic effect to just draw another card. You really want to be able to have a green spell to cast with it. You want a seeker. You want a, you want a tutor. Yeah, I, th- I think that was one of the things that was hard for me to wrap her- my head around when I was playing the deck, where I would draw seven or multi six or even multi five because the path was never clear and it would be lands and spells and then I would just have to hope I get lucky at some point. And that, personally, it just feels better than saying like, oh, I'm going to multi three and then hope I get really lucky at that point and then regret not taking one of those questionable sixes. Absolutely. And I think that's something that we're all getting at here is that Tron is difficult, and part of the reason that it's so difficult is that you have to sort of rewire the way your magic brain works. And uh, strategies and things that work for other decks or work for other archetypes are almost the opposite of what you would do here. So it's it's really easy to fall back on old tropes or, oh, I know I would do this with this deck, and then just get totally punished for it. I, I think that the reason that I really disliked playing this deck is because I don't like trading card advantage for material advantage. And that is how I kind of feel the mulliganing is, is happening here is that I try to do something, one thing that's really powerful instead of trying to kind of like have a bunch of different options. And so the decks that I tend to value are decks that kind of draw extra cards, two for one, things like that. And so with Tron, you generally are trying to get a really powerful effect out there that you hope turns into a bunch of card advantage and buys you back. But it makes me really uncomfortable to be out over my skis like that, where I'm not entirely sure that it's going to work out. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's kind of the whole point of this conversation, I think, right? Is I, w- I was surprised, Stan, when you mentioned that you didn't feel like you understood the path to Tron, right? When you can kind of do it, but just looking at your hand in a lot of ways. And I think the, what the, the confusing part comes in is saying, if I'm missing one card, I may need to get there. What is that piece and what are my odds to draw it? Because most of the cans you want to keep have an automatic way. Like there could be two Tron lands and an expedition map, right? Or a Tron land or two Tron lands, a chromatic effect and a Sylvan scrying, right? So those are effectively doing the exact same thing. So that gets you to your turn three Tron and you're there. Where the variance comes in is if like the example we keep giving earlier, which is, okay, I need to get a second Tron piece and I'm on four cards. My odds to get that second Tron piece maybe are 38% or perhaps on the draw, they're 48%. And that is something that you have to become more comfortable with or mull again and see what happens. But people like Owen are comfortable taking you know odds like that. And I think that there's plenty of ways for Tron to survive past turn three anyway. Like, okay, maybe it's turn four and my odds are even better and I'm fine with that based on the threats I have in my hand. Or knowing the speed of your opponent's deck. If you know that they're a slower deck, you don't necessarily need to have that turn three path. You can get there on turn four and be okay. Mm-hmm. So I think that this kind of gets us into a way to create more edge for yourself with your initial sequencing of cards. And I think that this can help. So one thing that I had a lot of trouble with in this zone when I was playing, honestly, was trying to figure out how to if decide if I wanted to crack my eggs or uh, for ancient stirrings or go for a piece directly with Sylvan Scrying, for example, yep. or Expedition Map. And so yep. what, do you, what do you think about that? Question. Should I be trying to draw extra cards earlier or should I be trying to search up specific cards earlier? 
I think that based on what I've read in my experiences, maximizing your cantripping and prioritizing just drawing more cards is more valuable than searching your deck because what you want to be able to do is just see more of your deck before you before you dig through it because you know if you are you know digging and cantripping you're going to know what land you want to hit with your tutors so you know the earlier sequencing you want to play let's say you have a, a single tron land and a couple searching effects and a couple eggs you're going to want to dig through your deck more to get a higher pro uh, probability of getting that second Tron piece. If you have two Tron lands in hand and the expedition map, I mean, you know what you need to do. You're just going to play the expedition map on right. turn one, crack the map on turn two, and you're good to go, right? So it's just like we've talked about in our Is It Phoenix conversations, which is cantripping is just good. You're seeing more of your deck. You're drawing more of your cards. The same philosophy applies here. Yeah, save your faithless looting for later is the same thing as save your ancient yep. stirrings for later. Exactly. Because you'll know more what you need. I have a question here, or um, maybe um, a lesson or something to that effect. I think a trap that's easy to fall into and something that I did until maybe a, a few years ago was I would think that it might be better to play the Sylvan Scrying first because you're taking a card out of your deck and therefore have a better chance of hitting something that you'd want with uh, the Ancient Stirrings. And I've come around to the other way of thinking, but maybe you could help me through why that's actually not the case and why that's sort of a trap you can fall into. Well, I think the biggest reason is that if you cantrip after you search, okay, so if you decide that you're going to turn to Sylvan Scrying off of a forest and an Urza's Tower, how do you decide which Tron piece you're going to take between the mine and the power plant? You don't have that much information. And so what happens is sometimes you, you then draw a bunch of cards afterwards and you draw a redundant piece to one of the ones that you already have. Whereas if you offload all those cantrips and see as many cards as you can first, maybe you will get the mine or the power plant. So then at least you know which one you're supposed to tutor up. Is that kind of the mm -hmm. short, the short version of that? Yeah. I mean, that's what I'd say is the more information you can have before digging through your deck, the better off you're going to be. In terms of like actually physically digging with a with a tutor or a stirrings, I mean stirrings is so powerful for like Stan said for if you're feeling threat light, you really want to dig with that stirrings card. It's just so powerful. Wait, you know, feeling like you're wasting it just to find a Tron piece can feel pretty bad because it's I mean, that's what your land tutors are for. You don't really want to be using a stirrings on that unless you really kind of have to. So all right, so we've heard all this stuff about how I misplayed Tron in my with my experiments. On, uh, on trying to, to give it a shot for this show and all the ways that Stan did a good, very good boy job playing it well in his first couple of runs. But yeah. my question is, I, I often feel like I have problems beating this deck when I face it and it sort of feels like it doesn't matter what deck I'm playing. I always kind of struggle against it because I feel like they just always feel like they just always have it. So how do you guys beat Tron when you're playing it? What are some of the best ways to, to kind of do that? So as someone who runs a lot of Blood Moons, that's a good card, but you do need to follow it up, and Goblin Rabble Master is my go-to card to beat Tron. They often have a very hard time removing it, and getting it with the damages from the little goblins, even if they kill the big boy, is often enough to get there. Why do you think that those cards work well against Tron, Zach? Just because it's very hard to remove for them. They don't have removal, usually main deck outside of Karn, uh, Ugin, or O-Stone, which are a lot of mana to get to, and Rabble Master me played pretty early. So by the time they have removal, you usually built a pretty considerable army of goblins that's hard to deal with. 
Yeah, I mean, it does. It's one of those situations where you got to kill them before they can blow up O Stone. So, yeah, exactly. what we're talking here is mana disruption plus a fast clock, which we talk about all the time yeah. uh, as the way to do it. And so, this is sort of the prototypical path to take if you're going to play Blood Moon. Rabble Ma- being in a deck that also has Rabble Master to get a little faster helps. So, one thing that I've been surprised is not as good against Tron as I, I think it is is um, point land destruction. Yeah is sometimes not a guarantee. Like I often feel like if you get to turn four and they have Tron up and I can Assassin's Trophy or Field of Ruin, one of the Tron pieces that they only have one of, you know, I generally a lot of times have felt like, hey, I'm in the clear now. No, it doesn't it doesn't often turn out that way. And so I think that um something to keep to keep in mind there is just you have to do a little bit better than just taking out one Tron piece in order to disrupt disrupt their plans. Yeah, I think that really factors into why Blood Moon by itself isn't enough, because Tron will just get the mana to hardcast Wormcoil or Karn eventually. So it slows them down, but they have plenty of ways to keep seeing lands and getting stuff into play, and they will just hardcast their threats if they have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Crumble, Crumble the Dust is pretty ruthless, but Crumble the Dust is also not seen play. Who that plays play. it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, no one no one plays that card. Yeah, I bought it, I tried it, and I was like, this just isn't good enough. But even though we're talking about land destruction being not great you got to still use it like if you've got your field of ruins if you have a molten rain if you have assassin's trophy you should still seriously consider using them to i mean assassin's trophy is more versatile but if you have pointed land destruction it's still potentially going to buy you a turn or two or if not more oh yeah oh you know i molten rain you know i'm bringing it in not wholly unplayable no not at all not unplayable i've just always been disappointed by the amount of time it buys me. You sound like my father. Like I always yeah. felt, I always felt like it would do more, but right. it really just, like you said, buys maybe a turn, maybe two turns, and that's kind of it. Yeah, yeah. And part of that's just due to, the re- due to the redundancy of the deck. So you can always find more land tutors. You can always find another ancient stirrings to dig a little bit. You can get to that next land you need to replace it pretty easily. Often. I mean, don't get me wrong. Sometimes you just totally pick the right land and and hit it with molten rain and do two damage to them, and then they're just done. But yeah. it's hard to know. If someone has two towers, a power plant, and a mine out, which one do you get? Right. There's so many times you hit the mine thinking you're making galaxy brain moves, and then they dump the mine from their hand. And, exactly. Oh, you just they ha- they you have never no way didn't to know. have it. Okay. Yeah. You know what's better than the land destruction, though, is simply making the artifacts not work. So that turns off the chromatic stars, the chromatic spheres, the expedition maps, the oblivion stone, Relic the of yeah, all that stuff. So good old Stony Silence. Underappreciated as a hate card against Tron, I think. Yeah, especially on turn two. It just just buys you so much time. Oh, yeah. I think that really factors into the previous discussion that people undervalue the power of the eggs in the deck. And being able to shut them out from filtering mana and filtering cards even is a very powerful effect. I think even more powerful than Blood Moon is just because with Blood Moon, the inevitability is still there. But if you're keeping them from seeing more cards, that's a lot more powerful. Yeah, and pe- people keep hands based on game plans that rely on these artifacts, right? Exactly. So if they can't use their initial four or five, six cards based on the plan they had in mind, you're really going to stymie their development. And if you're presenting any sort of clock through that, that can buy you more time, like you said, than a turn three Blood Moon can. Another two CMC casting card that we've been talking a lot about, and anyone can cast it, Damping Sphere. What do you guys think about that? Seems about the same as Blood Moon to me. 
Maybe I'm wrong. I dislike it more. I, I don't don't like playing against it for a few reasons. Can you guys contemplate what those might be? Well, for one, Damping Sphere comes out sooner. Yes. Yeah. Good point. It can come out a whole turn sooner. Also, any deck can play it. I mean, any yes. deck in theory can cast it. Maybe like Phoenix isn't casting it because it's so bad. But um, like you'd never know who might whip it out. I have been surprised by that card more times than I care to mention. All sorts of decks will spring it on me from the sideboard. It's one, it's one of those things where I've started just sort of bringing in maybe one or two nature's claims occasionally because I cannot get caught by it by any deck that's presenting any kind of aggression because it just slows me down too much. One of the other things that's really annoying about it is that it makes me casting like my cheap eggs and the tutors that I'm like sort of uh, drawing to via the eggs. It makes me unable to cast them for the cheap mana. So there's there's some there's some annoyances with the taxing effect when you have to cast a lot of cheap spells to try to draw through your deck. And if you're unable to use your mana effectively, that can slow you down as well. So one of the cards that I found really challenging to play against when I was testing Tron online was Gadok Teague, which I think mm-hmm. falls into the line of really effective hate bears against Tron. So Gadok Teague is a green and a white. Non-creature spells with converted mana cost. Four or greater can't be cast. Non-creature spells with X in their mana cost can't be cast. Because it's non-creatures, it's not totally game-breaking, but it shuts off your Karns and your Ugins. Yeah, non-creature spells, yes, exactly. Which are super important to Tron's plan. You can still get an Ulamog and maybe a Walking Ballista Thrag Tusk. Yeah, I mean, it's worth bringing in if you have it, for sure. Yeah. Likewise, the two-drop Thalia can slow down an opponent from casting turn three Karns. might even prevent them from casting eggs quickly enough. Um, or it'll even uh, maybe slow down their green ramp spells. So they're going to have a harder time finding their specific Tron pieces that they need to get the combo going. And finally, we're not seeing a lot of play of this just yet. But Lavinia, Azorius, Renegade... Uh, she can probably prevent a turn three Karn and most of the other payoffs for at least a few turns. I, I can see her potentially making, a, you know, finding a home in modern eventually. I know Shane picked her as one of his Ravnica Allegiance prediction cards, you know, what, a month or two ago? Yeah, it's an interesting card. I think that there's just enough other ways that people can fight against Tron, like you said, even with Thalia, when which is a deck that Lavinia would probably see play in, like a humans or a spirit strategy. But we'll see. I mean, Car- Tron is making a comeback. Last two categories of things that are good against Tron. There, There's two quick things. So cheap counterspells yes. that, work against, that work against non-creature spells, or in the case of Ceremonious Rejection, work against colorless spells are really good. So when Tron is really popular, or Eldrazi Tron, or something like that is really popular in the metagame, you'll see people throw in Ceremonious Rejection. You know, Disdainful Stroke, I think, is actually a really good card, because there's so many things that are above 4 CMC that I love to bring that in against Tron, because it also counters Worm Coil Engine, and also uh, Karn, where Negate does not mm-hmm. do that. Negate, I think, is decent, because there's so many non-creature pay- payoffs for Tron, um, you can also sometimes get one of their uh, one of their tutor effects. So there's the whole kind of like universe of those specialized blue counter spells that you can use for that. That once actual counter spell gets printed, they'll all just be counter spell. I'm kidding about that. 
I don't think you mentioned it, but spell pierce also. Like so often the Tron player is just tapping out, so you could get them with that extra two mana attacks. Yeah, and spell spell pierce is one of those things where it's like you gotta figure out which deck you're playing it in again over negate, essentially, right? Because sometimes you want you you're in a deck where you have only one mana and sometimes you're in a deck where you really just have the two mana to be able to hold up for counter spells. So that's the thing. Like I tend to sort of not play decks that that run spell pierce but like but like to play decks that can run negate a lot so i think it just there's a little bit of choice going on there too but you're right spell pierce is very powerful in that scenario too yeah i think i think those do work because the the tron player has to tap out or else they just fall off tempo too much right so you you get them a lot so if you get sylvan scrying with spell pierce you're feeling pretty 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 good about it I oh think. yeah yeah so we talked about kind of ways that you are going to try to beat Tron. And so how is your Tron opponent going to try to shore up their post-sideboard games against you? So Tron sideboard, I think, is actually really easy to understand once you understand the cards that people bring in against Tron. And so here, here's yep. how it goes. Bring in all the nature's claims, number one. <laughs> it's similar to, to Dredge in that way, where yes. a lot of the hate that goes against Dredge is you know artifacts or enchantments that limit the graveyard with Tron, it's it's either artifacts or enchantments that attack lands or artifacts. So it's either artifacts or lands that attack lands or artifacts. And so you can come. You need to bring in the nature's claims to be able to do that. And it's just the best mm-hmm. option because it's one mana. Yeah, and the opponent's life total doesn't matter that much because your inevitability is so good. Apparently, opponent's life totals don't matter in modern since everybody loves to play uh, to play nature's claim over something like natural eyes. So, <laughs> so I, I think in general, so the four life is worth the one mana payoff, and that's just good to know in general. The second card that you're going to almost always see in Tron sideboards is Thrag Tusk. Always. Why? Because it just does so much. It lets you pivot into more of a mid-range strategy. When you feel like your mana is going to be taxed, you might need to lower your curve. Um, it also acts as like this. It acts as like this, this less powerful but more reliable worm coil. Yes. So it gains you li- it gains you life on the ETB, and it fights through the exile base removal, which worm coil does not do. So if someone just paths your worm coil, you got no value out of it. Yeah. Think of it this way. If you are playing something that, yeah, has a bunch of removal, you get value out of Thrag Tusk. If you are playing against something that's going to try to be aggressive and do a lot of damage to you, putting in extra Thrag Tusks supplements your Worm Coils as a way to just extend your life total to a place where you can play even bigger, more powerful broken cards. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. It also lines up really nicely against the decks that are good, or some of the decks that are good against Tron. You know, small, exactly. go-wide creature decks, burn decks, basically the fast stuff. Thrag Tusk can help you claw your way out of those situations. Yeah, you 100% bring it in against any aggressive deck just for the life gain and for the big body it provides and then the, the body it leaves behind. So it's it's a great addition. I mean, there's been decks that have won with it in the main deck recently because it's just pretty valuable in an aggressive metagame like where we see ourselves in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And a deck like Burn that might have to try to get there with creatures on the ground, Thragtus just absolutely stops that strategy cold. Mm-hmm. It's also hilarious against Is It Phoenix, because <laughs> if they cast a thing in the ice and then you follow that up with your own Thragtusk, they're just like, oh, sure, I'll take the extra creature and recast this Thragtusk. Please. Boom. Okay, the last staple of sideboards, or at least the one that goes into multiple, the multiple count range, is Thought Not Seer. Yes. 
which is an interesting card because you can't really play it ahead of the curve. I mean, you can play it on turn three with Tron. So that's at least one turn ahead of its four CMC. But what it does is it, again, allows you to lower your curve. If you think you're not going to be able to use your Tron lands for bonus mana, you can play it on turn four. Um, and what it does is it's great against your combo matchups, which is something you're pretty weak to. So if you're able to strip out a combo piece or strip out a hate piece, that's still really good to be able to do. You know, it's it's a 4-4. Four, four, it's, uh, it's a good beater. It's a good blocker. Gets rid of important pieces in your opponent's hand. It does a lot of different things. Okay. And you're going to sometimes see some removal and spatial contortion, uh, some warping whale. You might see some surgicals just because there's so much value there, like we talked about a couple episodes ago. That's about it. So like the main thing it's trying to do is shore up its weakest matchups, which are very aggressive strategies and strategies where they're going to hit your mana. And combo. And combo. Yeah, exactly. So it's pretty to the point. Like it's not it's not a hugely flexible sideboard because Tron already has so many strong matchups. So what guys are the matchups you think that are strongest against Tron? Uh, right right away I think of Storm and Ad Nauseam, which are decks that do not really care about the opponent's game plan, and we mentioned the lack of interaction that Tron typically has. So decks that are trying to combo off on turn three and four can easily do that against Tron most games. Yeah, Titan Shift is also really tough for Tron. Absolutely. Burn comes to mind. Burn's pretty good. Burn's pretty good. Post sideboard, you can do so much with your Thrag Tusks and the yeah. one Coils, you know? Yeah, I, I've just heard Tron players refer to Burn as unbeatable. And even though I think that's quite hyperbolic, you can kind of understand where they're coming from because the game one against Tron for Burn is so favored. Yeah, and then uh, Infect is, is extremely rough, but Infect his popularity is way down. The Eldrazi Taxis strategies are not easy to beat, like we talked about earlier. Why is that? Because they have hand disruption and and searching disruption, kind of? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, the, it, taxes, it taxes your cheap spells. It can attack your mana base. They usually run a lot of ghost, ghost quarters. Quarter. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just all sorts of reasons. A Chalice on one seems pretty brutal for Green Tron. Yeah, and I was even thinking the more traditional Eldrazi Taxis, like the black-white one that has, like, Tide Hollow Skuller and stuff. But the Leon one that we were about earlier, yeah, Leon and Arbiter is still in both of those decks. You can't, you can't, you can't search through your deck for your lands. So yeah, it's pretty brutal. Uh, the War Prison strategies are much harder than the Lantern strategies, which is pretty much a walk for Tron. I actually can't speak to why. I'm just going off of like what I've heard heard other Tron players say. I think it's because, like you said, Dave, I think that it, they're they're a toolbox deck, so they can find their tools to get there in a yeah. pinch at instant speed if they need to yeah black you blue black mill uh stuff like goblins those are bad matchups but i think what's interesting about this list is that it's not that big and there are a lot of obscure decks yeah. so i mean there's there's some big names there right but by and large tron is pretty is even to pretty good against a lot of the main field i think two decks that i've piloted that i think are okay against tron elves it's good because they'll just barf your hand, and if they don't find an Ugin or a timely Ostone, they'll just run over the Tron opponent really quick. And likewise, I think Blue-White Control, uh, I played against it as the Tron player and found it a lot harder than I had anticipated because playing, yeah, yeah. playing Jeskai Control, like Helix and Bolt and Paths tend to come up at these awkward times against the uh, Tron opponent, but Blue-White Control can line up a lot of counterspells that'll pretty much do the trick and 
Uh, sometimes I feel like blue-white plays at the same tempo as Tron, which can be an advantage for that deck. It's definitely one of the more skill-testing matchups. I think once Field of Ruin entered the format, right. I think that, that that is a deck that I think can play Field of Ruin, advance its own game strategy, you know, keep keep itself uh, going well with its mana. They can even run you out of your basics sometimes with paths and fields. So that's definitely not as a walk in the park as some of the other control decks used to be, at least. Yeah, so so we've gone in great detail about how Tron works, its plan, and how to play against it. What do you guys think about its current role in the meta? Would you recommend someone pick up Tron now? I would say yes, but only if you're willing to commit yourself to it. <laughs> what do you mean by that? I think, as we mentioned, it's a deck that really rewards knowledge of it and rewards repeated practice. And it's... As I mentioned earlier, it's it's a different wiring of the brain or a different way of looking at magic, and the skills aren't exactly one-to-one for Tron and other decks. And Tron is powerful, but you really have to know what you're getting into. And as priorly mentioned, there's so few decision trees that one wrong move can spell disaster the rest of the game. So it's a powerful, very consistent and good deck, but only if you are on top of your game. Yeah, it's really good against Phoenix right now, so that's one reason. It's also pretty good against Dredge, another reason to play it. I think it has a lot of strong matchups in the field now, which is why we're seeing a bit of a resurgence of it, I think. Absolutely. Dave, what do you think? Uh, I'm not interested in playing this deck. <laughs> so I was just going to let you guys talk. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think another thing that we touched on is there's the bad matchups are a little more fringy or decks that aren't around as much anymore. So while it does lose to combo pretty bad, combo is not a very large meta share at the moment. Yeah, Storm is not out there right now, you're right. Exactly. It seems they've all moved to Phoenix. And with all the main deck relics, it's not that even that bad. I mean, it's not great, but it's not that bad. Yeah, you have a main deck out to their strategy, which is always a good thing. Some of the reasons, I think, to play Tron, besides the ones we already mentioned, of course, are like it, 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 transform, it can transform into a pretty good mid-range deck with some of the cards we talked about before. Um, you know, and there's not really that many true silver bullets, like even Blood Moon and Damping Sphere, like we all talked about, just slow the Tron deck down. But like a Leyline of the Void against Dredge or a Blood Moon against Scapeshift, unless those are off the board, that deck is likely not going to win. But Tron can just keep making those land drops and just get there. And so, you know, right now it's strong against some of the popular decks. It's kind of hard to hate out completely. It's pretty transformative. It can shore up its weak matchups. It's not an absurd win rate deck it's a 52 percent deck or something like that let's say right it, it gets there a lot and if you know what you're doing with it it's 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 consistent and good and i'm going to say that we're consistent again so we covered what some of tron's worst matchups are but you often hear it referred to as a really strong matchup against mid-range and control can we touch on why that is so the biggest reason i think stan is that the inevitability of the deck is just so much more strong than mid-range and control strategies. And so neither of those decks are fast enough to beat Tron quickly. And so Tron can just get to its more powerful end game almost all the time against those strategies. Huh. <laughs> so, so that basically means that if you are a Tron player, what you really want is to see a field that has some Grixis Death Shadow. You want to see some... Uh, you want to see some green black mid range. Jeskai control. You don't mind playing against Is It Phoenix. You want some Jeskai control. Yeah, absolutely. And something that factors in here is that hand disruption, while it seems very good against Tron, actually isn't that great for the most part, just because of the consistency of the deck. So there's a ch- like 
we mentioned how what you want is your lands and the payoffs will come. And Thoughtseize is not taking those lands for the most part. Yeah. So if they're taking your Karn, that's not great, but you will likely be able to find another threat, another payoff. So they're down a card and you don't care. You're going to get your Ballista. You're going to get your Ugin. Yeah. And if you get your Expedition map down turn one, like if you're on the play, then maybe you're you're all set up to get the, all the pieces that you need and their Thoughtseize exactly. ain't going to do much. Yeah. Guys, I don't know about you, but I wish I was still in math class so I could do some one plus one plus one equals seven. Impress the teacher with my wild knowledge of tier one modern strategies. Hey, you guys hear about that common core, that crazy math in the common core? Is that kind of what this is like? This is new math. Mm. New, new math. All right. That takes us out of the dive down for this week. We're going to take a very quick break. And when we return, we are going to take a listener question in the wind down. Stay with us. You know, Tron is a deck that's been around for a really long time. And somehow it's just managed to kind of like make it from the beginning, basically, of modern to this era of modern with uh, just increasing power and kind of adding added pieces. But, you know, no bands. Not, not every deck manages to make it that far, does it? So, yeah, some decks get cards banned. Some decks just see their strategies become more fringe. Some decks evolve into other decks, and their original shells left behind, and they become something new entirely, like a beautiful butterfly. Or a hermit <laughs> crab. Might be kind of a, a manamorphose, if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So, listener Craig, who's been with us for some time, asks, what's your favorite modern deck that's been lost to the annals of time? Shout out to the Something Awful community and Craig for being a part of that. Yeah, thanks, Craig. I'll start this one off. This is a deck that I have alluded to in the past, and it's a deck that is sort of around, but no longer its original form, and that is Norrin Sisters, which I have always really loved. Curveball. I love this. (laughs) I didn't know you were going to say this. So good. Soul Sisters. Yeah, yeah. So we talked about Martyr Proc, which I think is the evolu- the current version of the deck where that deck ended up right now. But you, uh, I love decks that play around in that weird space of abusing things like Enter the Battlefield triggers and stuff like that. And Norn is a card that when I first saw it in Time Spiral, I could not grasp. I didn't get what it was for. It seemed like they had misprinted the card or something was wrong with it and it shouldn't have made it to print and seeing it in a long junction with the soul sisters and the artifact card that gives you a, a mer anytime thing enter the battlefield was just wild for me but yeah unfortunately that strategy has fallen to the wayside and martyr proc has become the life gain deck of choice soul warden i i remember when i first started playing modern you know around 2013 and i was just kind of like surprised that uh soul warden was a card that was in a constructed deck that was actually pretty good right shane what what's on what's on your mind yeah so the deck that i kind of miss the most and i know it's still around but it's not what it used to be is infect infect was just stupid and broken i mean it's it was just count to 10 play some creatures play some pump spells casting the protection spells tilts people you get to play a little bit of counter magic in there you get to play evasive creatures you get to play flying lands it was a lot of fun it was really powerful you got to play some cheaty cards like getaxian probe and i miss i miss that i mean i've actually thought about trying to go back and playing it again and if if tron gets a bunch more metagame share then it could be a perfectly viable thing to take to an lgs because a lot of players at lgs's like to play tron so 
could be could be fun for kicks or uh, you know, rent on manatraders.com for a league. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, Ink Moth Nexus is a very interesting card as well. And I, I think that uh, I, a, a while ago, this is years and years ago at this point, I, I saw someone try to bolt it the turn after it had been activated and just things like that, like, oh, buddy, I'm not a creature anymore. Uh-uh-uh. And like little things like that. That's funny. Yeah, Infect was great. It's not so great anymore. I thought Infect is doing pretty well lately, and the GPLA data we got put it like above 50%. I think it had a better win rate than Tron and Is It Phoenix did at that tournament. I mean, the sample size was pretty small. It's like three yeah. guys. Three guys who are yeah. really good with Infect. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely definitely the kind of deck that no one's just casually picking up to take to a tournament. There are going to be people who have some experience with it and know how to play it pretty well. I mean, I don't think it's a bad deck by any means. It might actually be, in my, my favorite word, underplayed right now. It's okay. It seems bad in a field full of gut shots, but I yeah, know. but that, those are being shade for surgicals. Yeah, yeah, that's a big problem. Don't don't feel too bad if you're playing Infect right now. It seems like a perfectly cromulent deck today. Yeah. Now, Stan, you were talking about a card that was very key to Infect a minute ago. Is that Git Probe? It was. Tell me most about people, it. Most people most people say that Git Probe uh being banned was the nail in the coffin for Infect, which I always found kind of weird, but I struggled with that for a while, and I think finally understanding that was a big evolution for me in that Git Probe allowed you to double-check if it was safe to go in and just dump all your pumps on a creature, and also a free spell that draws a card is a good thing, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it helped fuel uh, the Become Immense delve. Right. That's, <laughs> that's that a big thing, too. Yeah, Git Probe is a card that I kind of regret that uh, I never got to play, because by the time I got into Modern, it had already been banned. And uh, as I've looked through the history books and seen old Delver lists with Git Probe and uh, uh, what is it, Treasure Cruise, <laughs> it just seems like me being a blue red spells person was uh, that was right up my alley. And it's fortunate to be in a time now where you can still play blue red spells and they'll be good. But uh, it feels like maybe I, I missed an opportunity to be competitive earlier on. So. I, I don't miss it from experience. I, I guess I just kind of miss it like I missed Woodstock. Yeah, if you can imagine like the contemporary brain trust behind all these modern decks now for blue-red spells and still have Gitaxian Probe, man, these lists would be so refined and so tuned and brutal. You'd love it. Yeah, and also, by the way, I think you, of course, would have loved Treasure Cruise, which was one of the most kind of panic-inducing moments in modern over the last... Uh, four or five years ago now where i think cruise was legal for what about five months yeah there's a small half year period it was basically like cons came out and then everybody was like treasure cruise and dig through time are so amazing and then um they got way too amazing too fast and that was it dave you're a fellow blue red spellsman i am what do you miss from modern well i am going to be really basic here and say splinter twin is the deck that I had. It's one of the first modern decks that I had that was banned out of existence. And uh, yeah, I don't necessarily think the deck should come back, but I definitely miss that uh, having fun with that core, trying out in different shells. As far as emotionally what I miss, that that would be it. What do you think you liked most about Splinter Twin? Because there's no deck that plays like that right now, is there? I mean, I think it's closest to Blue Moon. Yeah, really. Yeah, it's and, and whether it's Kiki or not, I think that the the thing is that that Splinter Twin got to play this kind of like 
middle kind of control game that occasionally would just pop and all of a sudden have a combo kill for somebody if they weren't paying attention to it. And so you could play the long game, you could cast a bunch of cryptic commands, you could, you know, kind of protect yourself, lightning bolt things, and then all of a sudden come out of nowhere and take someone down with uh, end step Exarch into next turn Kiki or next turn Splinter Twin. And so um, mm-hmm. that was just a really powerful kind of like one-two punch. And you try to make it work in, in Blue Moon, whether you have Kiki in there or not. But um, that was the thing that I, I missed about it was kind of that being able to suddenly exploit somebody who kind of let their guard down for a second. You look away for one second, all of a sudden there's 200 Pestermites. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wasn't that another deck that used Git Probe as well to make oh, sure for the sure. coast I mean, was clear? Every every deck used Git Probe at that point oh. in time. It didn't it didn't really matter. I mean, it was it's in free real estate. Yeah, it was in Shadow Zoo. It was in <laughs> you know, it was in a Jeskai Pyromancer deck that I built. Well, all kind of Storm used it, of course. Like it was just yeah. it was it was in every deck then just because it was a free draw card. But yeah, Splinter Twin, bye bye. Still still miss it. It's been three years. Number one in our hearts. Yep. Thanks again, Craig, for submitting that question. If you'd like to submit a question to our podcast, you're more than welcome to do that. Could appear in a future wind down, might even inform a dive down topic. Who knows? But in any case, that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episode as soon as they come out. And if you use iTunes, please leave us a rating and review. If you see us on Reddit, feel free to send us a message. We have great conversations every week when we post the episodes and sometime mid-midweek analyses as well. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. You can find us on Twitter at the dive down all one word or email us at the dive down at gmail.com. Until next week, get out there and count. To Threven! No, Dave's shaking his head. He can't even talk about these cards. <laughs> yeah, no, disgusting I don't know so enough. Much. I'm going to go get a beer. I'll be back in 20. (laughs) 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 No, you got to come back to talk about these cards, Dave. Oh, oh, I hear the car starting. (laughs) 